Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Totally Well Show. I'm your host, Joyce Strong. The Totally Well Show is a place where we get curious, ask questions, and explore everything to do with health, wellness, fitness, personal development, helping people, and all the things it takes to help you live a strong, joyous life. My guest today is Dr. Chelsea Sickle. Hi, Chelsea. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm really good, thank you. And thanks for trucking out here to Groton. My pleasure. Um, I just want to read a little intro about you, okay, if that's okay. So, glasses on, <laughs> even though this is a big print. But uh, Dr. Chelsea Sickle is a graduate of the Life University College of Chiropractic and a member of the team at Delta S Performance. You've met Dr. Lovich and Dr. Krafasi as well from Delta S. They've been on my show, so make sure you go back to those episodes. Anyway, during her years as a student and in her chiropractic career, Chelsea has focused her attention on pediatric and pregnancy care in order to create the right framework for optimal growth and development. I'm really interested in this. I have five kids. My daughter has five kids, new baby twins. Oh, I'm a twin and one of five, so that's so funny. Yeah. Chelsea's experience in this field has encouraged her to, uh, to dive deeper into the multifactorial sources of developmental and neurological alterations in the pediatric population. As a result, she has pursued postdoctoral training in neurochemistry, blood chemistry, and functional neurology, and will be board eligible for her diplomat. Is that how you say it? Diplomate. Diplomate from American Chiropractic Neurology Board this fall. Yay! Uh, through this work, she strives to create an integrated and collaborative approach to pediatric neurodevelopmental care. Don't be overwhelmed. We're going to make <laughs> it so easy and practical to understand. So there we All go. All right. So let's start off with what's functional neurology? So functional neurology is very much how it sounds. It's looking at the function of the brain and the nervous system. Typically, mm -hmm. this is done through a comprehensive neurologic exam, but there's a lot of other components to it, and we want to understand, is your brain functioning optimally? Mm -hmm. Are you able to live life the way that your brain was designed to lead it? Um, and so that can look very different, and there are a lot of different focuses. So my specialty is the pediatric neurodevelopment, mm -hmm. and there are some doctors like Dr. Lovich, Dr. Kafasi, that pursue more of the sports-based post-concussive route, but there's also uh, neurodegenerative, so we work with patients with MS and Parkinson's, and so it's a really broad field and it's really whatever specialty you want to take it. Okay. So I know from meeting with um, with Dr. Lovich and Kurfasi that that their their subspecialties within functional neurology isn't meant to replace what you would get from your doctor or from your other healthcare team. It's more on top of in addition to Absolutely, yeah. So we always strive to create complementary care with the other practitioners doing this work. So in my field, we have practitioners who are OTs. We have physical therapists. We have ABA therapists, speech therapists. And I strive to create a complementary relationship with their programs and what they already do because they do it beautifully. So I want to support them. and create a really comprehensive approach. Mm -hmm. So it's a, it's a team approach. And Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and I like to say it's also a family approach. So oh. a big piece 
is the family. You, you can't just work with the child and act like they're in a vacuum. It's how is the dynamic between them and parents? How is the dynamic between them and their um, peers at school? And I like to check in with parents even between appointments. So I like to call parents, see how the program is going, see how exercises are going, discuss any frustrations, even if it's dietarily, things that I can do to support them as we move through this program together. When do you start working with with um, your pediatric population? What age is So my about? ideal would be um, a little bit older than four. I want to make sure that there's some sort of verbal communication that can happen. So it's not always traditional verbal communication. Sometimes there's some sign language. Sometimes they um, like to write, like to draw. So they all have their unique different forms. But I like to make sure that I'm understanding the feedback that they're giving me. Even in the absence of that, I can still make changes for them. But my ideal would be four to six because then Clinically, they have a set diagnosis because you're not able to diagnose things like ADHD until age six. Mm -hmm. You're not able to diagnose things on whether they're on the spectrum, autism spectrum disorder, until they're past age four. So it makes it easier for me to approach it clinically from there. But that being said, I do have some patients as young as two and a half, three. Um, I just have to get really creative with them. So. <laughs> So how do, how do people get to you in the first place? Like, do they come in with a diagnosis? Do you provide the diagnosis? It is a blend? Typically, typically, yeah, there is a blend. Typically, they come in with a diagnosis. So there's been some cues from school, from a therapist at school or um, from an OT, from a PT, uh, sometimes they have sensory processing disorder, sometimes there's concerns of developmental delays. And so they come to me seeking ways to improve their child's neurology. And um, so that can look like anything from, I have a patient that has a tremendous amount of gut issues and she also is on the spectrum and she also has seizure disorders. So we look at the window in and we just try and understand where can we find a place to start working with this patient and start improving their lives because that's the goal at the end of all of this is to get them results and improve their lives so whatever window i can find to do that that's how i approach it it's like any other human right <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah exactly what so whether <laughs> so yeah so i don't necessarily need a set diagnosis before they come in sometimes if i find that they can get more support at school i definitely find ways to get them that diagnosis or get them the support they need so that that child can achieve what they want to achieve. So, mm -hmm. yeah, that's my goal is just seeing where their needs are and approaching each case individually from there. Um, I don't mean to jump around, but that's no, kind no, of no, how, jump my, around. That's how fine. my brain works. Of course. I have an interest, especially when I'm coaching and working with people on nutrition and just general wellness, uh, when I'm speaking with... Um, maybe teenagers or young adults who are not married yet, they haven't really gotten into thinking that much about having kids, but maybe in the future, or those people who come in and say, I'm thinking about getting pregnant and they're 100 pounds overweight and they've got all these issues. So I think that 
from reading a little bit about you that you have some some um, knowledge about getting uh, yeah about preconception pre is yeah. huge. So. <clears throat> A question I get asked frequently is we're seeing a rise in things like sensory processing disorder, seeing a rise in ADD, ADHD, seeing a rise in things like autism spectrum disorder. And the concern is why is this rise happening? Where does it start? Is mm -hmm. it environmental? Is it genetic? And I'm going to say it's not a singular thing. There are a lot of factors at play, and so there's no root cause. I want to get rid of that language right away. It's, it's what are the underlying mechanisms, and there's multiple. And so one thing to do is to understand what factors can contribute to changes in a child's embryologic and neurologic development. When I say embryologic, I'm meaning their development in utero. Mm -hmm. So oftentimes there's things that, there's alterations that happen in their neurology before mom even knows that she's pregnant. Mm -hmm. So how can we support our body in the best way possible prior to conception to change our vulnerability to things like environmental pollution and glyphosates and GMOs in the food. So there's a lot of sources that we can't really control those things, but we can control our body. So understanding what is my blood sugar like? Because the scientific literature is showing that um, during pregnancy, if you end up with some sort of gestational diabetes, it can make your child vulnerable to some of these things, to neurologic changes in utero. There's also, uh, do they have appropriate vitamin D levels? Do they have appropriate folate levels? Do they have some sort of autoimmunity in their history or their family history? Because those are huge contributors. So we wanna make sure that moms are getting appropriate or before they become moms, they understand what are my vitamin levels? Am I taking vitamins regularly? Am I eating whole healthy foods? Am I moving? Am I active? Am I overweight? Uh, is my husband overweight? Is he inflamed? Because mom gets blamed a lot, but dad's a huge piece of this puzzle too. Mm -hmm. And he has huge genetic contributions that can be changed by these environmental factors. So I would like people to go into these pregnancies and understand that they have a little bit of a responsibility and take some ownership of that and not to cast blame, but just prepare accordingly. So do the things you can to set you and your future child up for the best success moving forward. I, th I think if people just understand that, that they can impact the health of their child years ahead of time if they do this, you know, yeah. not, oh, I'm pregnant, I'm going to start taking vitamin D. Absolutely, yeah. yes. And that's, that's something I get a lot is I'll have mothers come in and they'll be four or five months along and they'll be like, what can I do to support my vitamins? And it's like, well, I, I will absolutely help you with this, but it would have been really fantastic if they asked that a year ago. Mm -hmm. So even a few months of preparation of saying, okay, have I been taking fish oil regularly? Mm -hmm. Have I been taking folate regularly? Do I feel good? Have I been sick recently? So just get themselves into a really healthy state, feeling like the best version of themselves before they conceive, because then they're going to have a much better shot at having a healthier child. Do you work with people in, in, in any type of educational um, 
way around the preparation? Yeah, so when I have um, mothers come, I have worked with several patients on preconception, so mothers that are either struggling to get pregnant or they know they want to be pregnant within the year and they check in with me and see what they can do to lower some of those risk factors of having some developmental delays in their future child. And so it's something I absolutely love and it's part of what initially drew me to my specialty in chiropractic. And because of I felt that I needed to do more. I felt that I needed to support more because in a typical chiropractic visit, it's 10 to 15 minutes they have with me. I want something a lot more comprehensive. I want to be able to support their whole system, answer their questions, and do a lot of education. And I like to do talks around the community to educate as well, just so they have a resource to reach out or even point them to resources in their own community that I think would be a good fit. So what kinds of, and by the way, when you do those talks, how do people find out about those? So I have done talks at some new mom groups, yeah. and so a lot of that, they're already pregnant, um, but some of them, it's like their second pregnancy. Mm -hmm. um, there's, it's a lot of social media, so okay. you know, we yeah. reach out via that, and then we do talks through some we, as in me and Dr. Lovich, Dr. Kerfasi, yeah. do some talks through some different supplement providers. And so we just try and get the word out as best we can. And uh, a big piece is educating other practitioners because there are practitioners that want to help their patients with this, but they haven't necessarily had the tools. And so we try and educate them because then it spreads everything a whole lot more than if we're just reaching a few people. If we're reaching a few practitioners and making an impact, then we're reaching hundreds, mm -hmm. maybe thousands of people. Yeah, I think that's a great way. And also with when people come in to a talk, they meet other people in similar situations. So they get some, some peer support as well. Absolutely, and I've had patients um, that because of the unique needs of their child, they're in support groups. And so they spread the word and they, you know, disseminate the information that I've shared with them in a way that could help other people as well. So I think we, I'm a little bit concerned about the language that people will be overwhelmed with neurodevelopmental yes, yes. and neurochemistry. Can you get into defining yeah. some of those so, so foundational I, things? Yeah, so absolutely. Um, yeah. So when I'm talking about the neurodevelopmental program, I'm talking about cognitive changes, movement changes, behavioral changes, and um, a couple other things. But so when I say cognitive changes, I mean are they able to interpret the world around them? That's the dyslexia. That's the, um, I would say Asperger's is on that, even though that's no longer an accepted clinical diagnosis by the DSM-5, people recognize what that looks like. They, they understand the lack of eye contact. They understand the flat affect, the inability to understand other people's emotions and put themselves in those shoes. So that's the cognitive. There's the behavioral, which can be the ADD, the ADHD, oppositional defiance disorder, obsessive compulsive disorder. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's the movement, which can look like connective tissue disorder. Those can be the kids that aren't crawling appropriately. Those can be the kids that have poor 
proprioception, I'll define it. So what that means is they ha they're not able to perceive the, round, the world around them with their movement. So they, the child that will bump into things frequently because they don't know where their arm is in space, so they'll just hit things. Mm -hmm. And so we can usually categorize the children that we see and their needs into one of those three categories, but they're not mutually exclusive. So yeah. all of these things <laughs> overlap a whole lot because there are children with ADHD that also have anxiety, also have depression, also have um, OCD-like tendencies. There's children on the autism spectrum that have a tremendous amount of gut issues that also have a tendency to have seizures. That So they all overlap and we just try and understand what that child's needs are through a very comprehensive history, a comprehensive neurologic exam. And when I say that, that means like when they go to the doctor and they have their reflexes checked and they have their grip checked, we do that, but we dive a whole lot deeper and make it a lot more comprehensive and understand not is this normal from here, but is this optimal from here? Mm -hmm. Does, did I cover it? Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> okay. That helps. Yeah, we're getting there. And then you mentioned another word. What was the word? Proprioception. Oh, proprioception. So yeah. that's, that's, does your body know where it is in space? Okay. Oh, I think you did, did yeah. define that. Yeah. And then what about when you say neurochemistry? What are you talking about there? Anytime I hear the word neuro in front of... I, I know it sounds like, it sounds really overwhelming and yeah, the eyes glass over. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so what that means is <clears throat> the neurochemistry end of things. I always like to focus on that first and foremost with these kids because it, it has to do with kind of is there inflammation in the brain? Mm -hmm. The easiest way to say that. So is the brain able to function well or are these inflammatory markers changing the way the brain is able to process information, able to learn and retain new things? And what is driving that? Sometimes it can be they're not able to convert vitamins to a form that they can use. They're not able to convert vitamins into neurotransmitters. Sometimes it's gut biome issues, so we hear leaky gut a lot. Sometimes it's something that looks like that. Sometimes it's bacterial overgrowth in the gut. So even though it sounds like it's pure brain chemistry, it has to do with systemic wellness around the gut because the gut-brain axis, there's a huge connection. The brain won't function well if the gut is not functioning well. So we understand, is the gut functioning well? Do they have appropriate levels of vitamins? Are they able to use the vitamins that they are taking in? Because sometimes they're taking a perfect multivitamin, but it's not in a form that they can use because they don't have the right enzymes to put them in a form that they can use. Uh, what's their neurotransmitters doing? So that's when we hear like the dopamine, the serotonin, are those in the right places? Are they being made in the gut or made in the brain? So it can sound really complicated and 
for me, it's really fun because it's a huge puzzle piece. So I get to just tinker with all of these lab values and, and understand based off their history and their symptomatology what could be driving these things. Um, but at the end of the day, it's, it's nutrition. And is their body able to handle the nutrition that they're getting? Are they getting the right nutrition? Well, that I know that a, was a lot. Yeah, I'm no, sorry. No. I tried to make it easy, and I made it more complicated. No, no, not at all. But it's just giving me more things to, to dive into. So mm. the gut-brain connection, or you call mm-hmm. it access, is one thing. I'll, so I'm going to come back to this from a practical. Yeah, I'll have be, at it. Yep. I'll be with a bunch of kids and parents, and they'll say, um, or I even notice this like the day after Halloween, having a hockey practice, the day after Halloween. So the parents will say, they had a lot of sugar, they're off the wall. Yeah. That's how they, and they just think sugar, hyperactivity. Mm-hmm. Um, and to me, that's selling short what's really happening with. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean. So, what happens? I eat a ton so- of sugar. <laughs> what's going on? So when you're eating a ton of sugar, you're getting um, you're getting all of these gut enzymes released. You're getting um, these little cells in the gut that are tasting that sugar, tasting that substance. Because a lot of times it's not just the sugar. What else is in that? It's the wheat. It's the dairy. It's these things that the scientific literature has pointed to be neuroinflammatory, inflammatory to the body. And so the body will sample these things that you're eating. It'll change your blood sugar accordingly and raise your insulin levels so that you get that sugar out of there. Um, But also it's signaling to your body like, hey, we have this sugar invader. Something's happening here. I remember this guy. And so you'll start this cascade of just inflammation. And so sometimes these kids will also get kind of swollen lymph nodes. They'll start getting sicker a little bit more after Halloween, and we want to blame the cold weather, but is it because they've been living on Halloween candy for a month? So that's something to take into consideration. So some children are more sensitive to it than others. So some children, they'll have something with just a hint of dye, and they'll be off the walls for a couple days. And then some children can have all the M&Ms they want, and they won't have a serious reaction. So it has to do is what is going on with their gut chemistry, what's going on with their brain chemistry, and their blood sugar levels. It's It's super nuanced. There's a lot of different things yeah. happening just from sugar. So... Yeah. Well, yeah. that's helpful. And it is complex. And I think if yeah. people realize it isn't just, it's not just a flash. It's not a one-day thing. And then, oh, we'll go on and be fine because maybe your your blood sugar will stabilize. But Yeah, I mean, because your, your gut microbiome, it can change within 24 hours of eating something. So mm. we've all experienced going on vacation in a foreign country and you're just like, I do not feel right. Your digestion does not feel right, even if the food doesn't look that different from what you eat on a regular basis. Um, And so with kids, we try and, and and adults, there's, there's this tendency to say that, oh, they're sensitive to this, so we're gonna cut that out, that's going to be out. But when a child has what we call 
a low oral tolerance, so they eat something and they're immediately sensitive to it, mm -hmm. the tendency is to start eliminating foods. And so we eliminate just dozens and dozens of foods, but then there's not much left. Mm -hmm. And so then they become sensitive to the things that they are eating. And so I like to recommend lots of different vegetables. Eat something different every week because we all have those kids that want to eat you know, the same five things every week. And mm -hmm. they're hurting their immune system, they're hurting their gut biome diversity. So try and get some different veggies in, try and get some different fruits in, make your gut biome diverse because then it strengthens it and then they can handle more of these occasional assaults on it, like the occasional Halloween candy and it's not as big of a deal. And then of course appropriate, um, you know, if they have low vitamin D levels, get those vitamin D levels up, strengthen gut that way. So just little things like digestive enzymes, hugely helpful because then they're breaking down the foods that they are eating. So they're breaking down those proteins so that they don't rot in their gut because they can't be digested down there. Or they're breaking down those carb molecules so those don't ferment in their gut and create bloating, gas, pain, all of that. and. Something to be noted is anytime you have a food dye in anything, it prevents the body from breaking down those protein structures. So your body will di not digest things that have a food dye and you have more likelihood of creating sensitivity around it, oh, wow. which kind of ruins Halloween that. candy, yeah. but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so much food yeah. dye so that it will look like we want to eat it. I, it yeah, it slows your body's ability to digest it and yeah. it can't break it down into a structure that your body will be able to recognize, hey, there's sugar in this, there's milk in this, there's chocolate in this. It's just like, we don't know what this is and we're just gonna shove it down into the intestines and then you get kind of that that rot, that bloat, you just get that, that, yeah, yeah. that, that putrefaction, that gas. Yeah. Like, yeah. Why, why, or why might um, a child be have have decreased digestive enzymes why would they well so so there's a tendency now with reflux there's a lot of things being done when a child is very very young sometimes babies they're getting these things that are like proton pump inhibitors lowering that stomach acid we like stomach acid we want stomach People acid give that to babies yes very frequently. Really? Very, very I know frequently. that was an adult problem. I didn't realize it was in the pediatric population. Yes, hugely. Um, but that is, that is one clinical approach, so that's something that can affect it. Um, it can be early antibiotic exposure. It can be early exposure to foods that they inherently don't do well with, so early exposure to dairy, early exposure to wheat, early exposure to sugar, mm -hmm. and that can change the gut's ability to digest foods. And I, I don't want to make a blanket statement that you know you shouldn't have these things that are recommended by your clinician because they're recommending them for a reason and that's their clinical decision and their clinical approach. Right. It, it's just something that down the line can change the digestion in mm -hmm. the body and can affect a child's ability to adjust. So sometimes it's, a, it's needed for now, but there's a healing or there's a recovery um, phase and so yeah, yeah. it could so be helpful it's, in the short run to supplement or? Absolutely, and, and I, I put a lot of my adults on gut enzymes, just things so that they can digest their food appropriately. Mm -hmm. um, 
And yeah, it's, that's why the history is so important. It's not to say, oh, this is what you did wrong. It's to understand, okay, that could have changed this, and how do we, right. how do we go from there? How do we build off that? And um, there are, of course, plenty of babies with really horrendous reflux, and reflux, and they're spitting up across the room, and the pediatrician recommends a proton pump inhibitor, and that stops, and then they're not frequently vomiting. So I'm not going to villainize that clinical approach at all, but it is something that changes the gut biome. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So uh, another definition, um, and I, anytime around a functional neurologist, I want to I hear, what is inflammation? Because so many of my clients will say, what is this, you know, inflammation? Because they can't, you know, you know if you mm. break your finger and it starts to swell, you see inflammation. Well, so inflammation inherently is your body protecting itself. So, so it's not all bad. No, it's meant to be good, but if it's sustained for a long time, mm -hmm. it can disrupt things like healing. It can disrupt things like appropriate body chemistry. So it's something that should be an acute reaction, but it's becoming a frequent daily habit. Mm -hmm. So the easiest one to talk about is food. So it's something that it's really beneficial for your body to recognize, hey, this is an invader. We're going to address it with our white blood cells. We're going to eat this. We're going to tag it and say, hey, this wasn't good for us. And then you have a systemic reaction. It goes throughout the entire body to send the signal out and say, we tagged this. Pay attention next time. But if you're eating those foods every single day, it's a constant interaction assault on your immune system. And so then you have this inflammation that started as being a good beneficial thing that now becomes frequent and it's daily and the body was not meant to be an inflamed state. So where is it frequency. in your body when you, you can't see it on the outside necessarily, right? You is can, it? you can. I mean, you know, people who wake up with swollen joints in their hands. Well, you know, sometimes when I eat dairy, I don't eat dairy, but when I eat dairy, I'll wake up and these will feel really achy and sore. Mm -hmm. And um, it can be in lymph nodes, but a lot of the inflammation is happening at a subclinical level that you're not aware of. So a lot of in it is brain. brain. Yeah. And so what does that sustained inflammation look like over a long period of time? It looks like neurodegeneration. So it looks like things like onset of Parkinson's, dementia, um, Alzheimer's. So sustained inflammation can create these really degrading things in the body and that's why it's important to pay attention when it's present and try to stop it. What are some of the more early subtle signs a person might feel if their brain is brain fog. Brain, brain fog, brain fog, yeah. yeah. So that's so even though it's made kind of a joke these days, it's it's a serious thing to acknowledge. It's a serious so if someone is like, you know, I just I can't remember things and I'll get to midday and I just feel like I can't, like I can't get that person's name. I don't have clarity of thought. They can't continue a train of thought. Things that they were could be really efficient at. Typically, they're they're slow at, or their lack of attention around it. So it's just kind of cast in this net of brain fog. Um, but that's an early sign of neuroinflammation. That's your body saying, 
hey, you did something and now this isn't functioning well and this is me communicating that to you. So what happened? Why, why aren't I functioning well? And so for me, it's I know when I have sugar, I know when I have wheat, I know when I have dairy, corn or soy, I am going to get brain fog. It's just going to be something that happens to me. It's my own delightful personal chemistry does not do well with those things. Um, and that's not a blanket statement for everyone because some people handle those foods just fine. But um, yeah, so frequent brain fog, that's something you want to pay attention to. That's not something you want to let go for 20 years and then you start forgetting things and have these neurodegenerative um, symptoms and then you start worrying about it. You want so to start early. So it's worsening over time in subtle ways? Yes, yeah, yeah, and yeah, so a lot of that is, you know, what's my blood sugar doing? What's, what am I putting in my body? What are my emotions doing? You know, th things like that. So just that personal hygiene piece, that personal health piece, do I feel my best today? Mm -hmm. And if you feel like you're brain foggy, you probably have some inflammation happening. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, you've mentioned that you work with adults as well as children. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What, so what happens, what, what kinds of problems do adults come in with when they want to see you? So, so typically, because my focus is the pediatrics, when I work with the adult patients, it's usually in tandem with Dr. Lovich or Dr. Krafasi, mm -hmm. because I really love this neurochemistry piece. I really love to read lab work. I really love to understand what is happening in their gut, what is happening in their blood. And, and so that's more my concentration in adult patients is um, if Dr. Krafasi or Dr. Lovich is seeing someone and they're like, hey, they have XYZ symptoms, they have Parkinson's, they have, they're post-concussive, they have this going on. But then there's this huge cognition piece that I like to address the neurochemistry so that when they do their functional neurology exercises with those patients, the brain has a higher capacity to handle it. So they're not going to get as fatigued as quickly from those neurology exercises. And also they're going to retain what is done during those sessions a whole lot easier. So that's my focus. Uh, so with, with in, doing some type of intervention, once you know the neurochemistry, is that what you meant? How do you mean? So you, you said you're, you like to look at the different lab tests and the mm -hmm. neurochemistry, and then um, how, how does that connect to the, act, the um, treatments that happen in terms of the exercises that are done? Yes, yeah, so... so I, How does that change things or influence so, things? Once so we know based that. off, yeah. So based off their very comprehensive history, because we have them spend an hour on the questionnaires before they come in, and then we do a ninety-minute exam, comprehensive neurologic exam, and then based off that, I think okay. Based off all of these symptoms they're describing, I probably want to check thyroid. I probably want to check these micronutrient levels, so their vitamin B levels, their vitamin A levels. I want to check, um, you know, do they have this inability to turn B6 into something appropriate? So based off that, I'll run labs. And then 
I work with them on some dietary changes. I work on some things with them at home. And then I give them appropriate supplementation if warranted so that when they are doing their neurology exercises, they have better capacity to handle it. Because, you know, for us, some of the cueing, if we're doing eye exercises with them and then all of a sudden their eye toses, it's okay their brain's fatigued, they're done. Mm -hmm. But we want to get them to a point where their brain is so strong between sessions that when we're doing those exercises, they can do more each session, mm -hmm. and then they can create better neuroplasticity around it. Neuroplasticity is a word that has been kind of popularized more in the past few years. So when you have lower inflammation, when you have better nutrition, better ways to support brain, that neuro neuroplasticity is drastically improved. So and can makes... you define neuroplasticity for us? Um, so it's <laughs> so it's basically your brain's ability to attain and retain information is going to be because so I'm probably it, going to overcomplicate it in my explanation. I think of it like re rewiring the brain it's or, or healing. Um, yeah, so it's it's kind of, yeah, it's like a healing process of the brain. Yeah, so it's, um, yeah, it's like if I started teaching you Spanish right here mm -hmm. and you were able to walk out of here knowing Spanish, that's... That's your body's ability to have neuroplasticity. It's ability to grow, learn, develop, and retain information and retain different things. So with the neurology, we're seeing, okay, is frontal lobe functioning? Okay, let's get that frontal lobe function improved, which is something I see in a lot of this pediatric population. I'm trying to educate a lot around that is, um, you know, when a child has a compulsion to do something, it's not necessarily them acting up, it's their brain just cueing them and saying, yeah, go do that, that's great. And so strengthening different parts of brain so that they can function in the way they were designed. Creating that balance. Yeah. So I can see what the, the uh, connection is. Once you know that chemistry, um, and I know I've spoken with, with other uh, doctors about this, I can get involved as a coach, a nutrition coach, or a mindset coach, and mm -hmm. helping make sure that they're doing the proper nutrition and figuring out what missing link might be there for them. Yes, to not, and I yeah. love collaborating with yeah. health coaches because if I can do what I do well, mm -hmm. and you know, I, I my ideal is not that I'm spending all of this time with the patients. I would like to set them on the right path. And then if I have a gifted health coach I'm working with, I love giving them the reins because that's what they love to do is support that patient and support them on a daily basis. And mm -hmm. so and that collaboration I, brings, put, brings the patient back to you in a more functional condition to be able yes, to do the exercises yes. that you do. Yeah, and that way they not only feel like they're they feel supported in many different ways, which I really appreciate. Anytime my mm -hmm. patients can feel supported in their path to healing is amazing. So it's not just knowing what to do, but um, having the support or figuring out what blocks might be there to get the, the job yeah, done. Yeah, and that was something you and I were talking about before um, we started filming was, you know, a lot of times people know what to do. They, they intellectually know, okay, I shouldn't eat this, I should, but 
there's something that's stopping them from creating those behavior patterns. And so having a life coach, having a health coach is tremendous because then I can just give the recommendations and then you have someone that gives them tools to start implementing them in a way that makes sense for them. What might block people? What, do, what are your thoughts on that? What might make... You might know that a bit more than I, I would. Have, I, well, <laughs> I know because I've been talking to some really smart people. Yeah, absolutely. But I'm just curious what your thoughts are on, on what would be interfering with a person who wants it, knows it, but is struggling with doing well so what's going on in their brain so yeah. so it's 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 hard to say that it's one singular piece of the brain so i you know i don't say well they don't want to go exercise so this is this part of the brain because yeah. the brain is a lot more complicated than that and that i have a lot of reverence for the complications of the brain but um i think that gets more into kind of the psychological piece tied in with the neurology piece. So it's mm -hmm. different for everyone. Different people have different hitches and it, that's why it's nice working with a health coach because you can understand, okay, just from an outside perspective, here are some things we can try and see what works for you. Mm -hmm. I, I'm, I'm getting like this picture that there's all these different parts of the brain and they all talk to each other and they do. something is just getting too much attention one part of the brain like the amygdala Absolutely. the fight or flight mm -hmm. versus the prefrontal cortex which is where we solve problems right yep. yeah 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 so um I'm concerned that if I go too much into pathways, we'll just kind of go down a rabbit hole <laughs> and uh, I will just get a little bit overcomplicated again. So yeah, yeah, we'll just kind of keep it at that yeah. if that works. Now, what kind of programs are you working on? Or uh, have you, do you have something that is um, a comprehensive approach or what? Yeah, so, so um, I am, what I would like to build is something that is something that is very comprehensive because not only do I like to collaborate with the occupational therapists, with the speech pathologists, with the um, ABA therapists to understand what are they doing and what are they already doing really well. Mm -hmm. How can I complement what they're doing by improving the child's diet, improving their ability to make neurotransmitters, improving their ability to um, just function interpersonally with their mm -hmm. their peers. Um, so so in reality, we all do overlap. So each of these practitioners, they're all doing something that another practitioner does in some regard. And so what I'm doing that's different is focusing on the brain first and foremost. Okay and understanding that piece. And so I will give exercises, but I will also talk to the OT and their ABA therapists and say, what are you doing for exercises? And I will understand if they need more support at school, how to get them set up with those programs in school. Um, try to understand what their specific needs are and go from there. So is it a, a, a formal program that you have established, or is it, is it individualized? It's, it's very individualized. Okay. Um, because you can't, let me think of how I want to phrase this. So I don't like just a broad-based approach. So if, 
for instance, I, I have an issue with when something looks like something and we just label it something. So yeah. for instance, a bat has wings and a bird has wings. They both fly. Are they the same animal? No, they're not even close. One's a mammal and one's a bird. And yeah. so completely different chemistry, completely different anatomy. And so something like OCD versus something like autism. So they both have these compulsions, mm -hmm. okay? So for a person with autism, when they have a compulsion, there's this whole positive experience that happens around when they fulfill that compulsion. So without getting too deep into the neurotransmitters, it's a positive experience. It's, it's a rewarding experience. Mm -hmm. Whereas someone with OCD, that compulsion is built out around kind of a negative consequence if they don't fulfill that compulsion. But people who have autism are still being graded, those compulsions are still being graded on an OCD scale, which mm -hmm. feels very inappropriate to me because it's a completely different mechanism. Mm -hmm. So I want to understand when a child comes in, what is their mechanism? What is driving these things? What unique things have happened? Because if you try and make just a blanket program of, oh, they have this going on, and so now I'm going to do this one thing for all children, you're missing a huge piece. And mm. so that's what I'm trying to create is something that is completely nuanced, balanced. And of course, there's structure to what exams I want to do. There's structure to what general blood work I want to get. But it's extremely individualized. And I appreciate that because I love puzzles. <laughs> <laughs> well, I see it the same way. I really, you know, the longer I've been doing this work that I do with coaching and nutrition and wellness, the more I see a need to um, get that comprehensive history and really individualize it. And people will say, well, I'm on such and such diet or such and such. And when am I going to go on this thing? And, I, and, I, and I'll just say, well, you're on the Chelsea plan. <laughs> you know, it's the Joyce plan. We're all individuals. And like you said, for some people, all the foods that you named that don't work for you may work, or some of them for someone else. And so why eliminate all, you know, because it worked for you without really understanding. Yes, yeah. yeah. And that's like even, even down to something like probiotics that it's, um, they can be super beneficial and wonderful, but there's just these broad spectrum probiotics that are being recommended and some have an overgrowth of lactobacillus some have an overgrowth of a different strain of bacteria so do you, you test want... for those things mm -hmm. yeah so usually I can figure out which strains go with what and so for instance I had a patient that um, was on four different probiotics but they all had the same strain of bacteria that when we did a stool assay was running rampant in her body. So I cut all of those out and put her on a prebiotic that would just choke out, you know, just kind of fill up space so that the other ones couldn't run rampant. Huge results. So if you just looked at her and said, hey, you have gut issues, let's give you these four probiotics, that's going to look very different from what's going on in your gut because your gut is very different from your dad's gut or your sister's gut or your cousin's gut or your classmate's gut. So, mm -hmm. so yeah, I, I like it to be as specific as possible because these children have very specific needs and they have very specific sources for these changes in their neurology. So that shouldn't be ignored. Do um, children or parents bring children to you 
who are, because I'm thinking some of these diagnoses sound very serious and without question there are issues. What about children who are more just kind of, there's something not quite right, they're, they're normal, they don't really have a diagnosis, but there's something... Yeah, so forget? there's like, yeah, so there's like just vague cues. So there's yeah. like, okay, like they're a little hyperactive and they have like a lot of psoriasis or eczema and, you know, they don't do well when they eat this. So it's it's no kind of gross pathology. It's no like they have these six hard diagnoses. That's when we step in and do our full comprehensive neurologic exam. Yeah understand because I'm not I'm not married to diagnoses there's not it's not something that I need them to have a diagnosis mm -hmm. it's okay frontal lobe doesn't seem to be working very well let's start doing things to engage frontal lobe and while we're at it we should probably eliminate this food and supplement with this and then see what changes mm -hmm. so it doesn't have to be them coming in with a hard diagnosis it can be uh, something's fishy here yeah i'm not sure what's fishy i would like you to help and then I like to look at myself as someone that can refer accordingly because I love collaborating with other practitioners. I don't want to be the one who's singularly handling all of these complex issues. So if I find that something's warranted and I want them to get um, a more firm diagnosis, I can recommend a psychotherapist who will get them that diagnosis, who will get them extra support in school, or I can recommend a vestibular therapist. Or So I can be kind of an avenue to understand what's needed, and if I need to refer for collaboration, I can. I think that's great because I, I think sometimes parents are shy about bringing a kid in to... Um, maybe afraid or just shy about it or, you know, minimizing it and it, uh, 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 support this way and getting them to the right path, whether it's working with you or some one of your collaborators, uh, could really improve quality of life and just make it so much easier. Yeah, I mean, and there are some great people doing some great stuff. Um, there's a gentleman, John Hatfield, he's over in Bridgewater and he runs a martial arts program for, um, children with autism and so he built this program that's really beautiful that they're doing different um, pattern sequencing, they're making eye contact, they have expectations and he's getting tremendous results. So I love collaborating with him because he's doing a lot of things to improve brain but in a fun way and creating really great function. Um, there's another woman that I love to collaborate with who does family yoga therapy. So, you know, she teaches them how to breathe, how to be calm, how to interact with mom and dad and um, makes it a full family process so they have ways to calm their child down and they have ways to get them through that day to day. And so there, there's a lot of really great avenues with this. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the movement um, piece. Oh, it's huge, yeah. huge. I teach hockey. Yes. And um, I see that a lot with the benefits of, of um, making it fun, but 
the the movement part of it and and where how you feel you just feel better you're a better learner when you're moving yeah yeah because you're engaging so many different parts of brain when you're moving and you're you're engaging the eyes you're engaging cross body movements you're engaging pattern sequencing and timing recognition and there's just huge function that happens and unfortunately we have such a preponderance of um, just like devices in this society today. And yeah. so, you know, children aren't climbing trees like they were. You they mean aren't... like video games and cell phones? Yes, <laughs> yeah. So you have them glued and and that can be overstimulating yeah. in a way that isn't positive. So it's, it's too much bombardment in one pathway, mm -hmm. whereas something like, okay, like let's play cards, let's play with blocks, let's go run around outside, let's do some light sports activity. Um, so can that be tied positive. in with what I was saying about overstimulating one part of the brain and creating an imbalance? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, because uh, I'm sure you've had interactions with children after they've been playing video games for even like 20, 30 minutes, and then they'll get off and they'll be kind of like nightmares. They'll just like be really emotionally revved up and they'll be really just... You know, they're not themselves. They're not their personality. It's it's kind of like they've just been trapped in this little zone, and then yeah, they don't do well when they have to open up and deal with the rest. So of they're the world. like us after we've been in traffic for an hour. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Exactly. So it's uh, yeah. So it's they're yeah they're they're kind of stir crazy and um, or 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 you can see they're not functioning as well. It's like, are you a zombie? What just happened? And it's it's because they were on a device. So part of what I usually recommend is um, we call it a device diet. So it's limiting that screen time and finding other ways to engage, which I know is very tricky when you have a hyperactive child because it's very easy to just give them the iPad and say sayonara. Um, but if you can find ways to limit that and find things that will excite them and engage them, then that's really positive. I just interviewed Austin Perlmutter, and he has got his new book, Brainwash. Mm -hmm. And um, he he and David Perlmutter talk about this. They they've I don't know if they coined the phrase disconnection syndrome, mm -hmm. um, but basically what you're talking about. And yeah. brainwash is basically a detoxing, and part of the detox is detoxing from digital devices. Um, yeah. getting out playing with nature and getting resensitized yeah yeah I mean huge and, and especially um, yeah the children with sensory processing disorder just yeah getting them out getting different textures under their toes getting dirt under their toes that's great not to not to minimalize that experience but you know there there are some simple things that can be done at home so we only have a, a couple minutes left, yes, and I want to. <laughs> it goes, just burns it goes through really our fast. time, didn't we? Uh, is there anything else that you wanted to talk about that um, before we, we wrap? Up? No, no. I just, um, I just want to cycle back that if you feel like your child is delayed in some way, follow your instincts because you know your child, and sometimes it can be a little bit minimalized because it's coming becoming more normal now like it's becoming more normal because 
these things are becoming more frequent, they're becoming normalized. So I want parents to recognize that, yeah, your child should be go able to go across body. They should be able to sit still for five well, minutes. Well, let's they let's should. Re-say, let's say that more carefully. Not not that you say oh, carefully. Sorry, let's, sorry. No, let's. I didn't mean that <laughs> the way it came out. You said you said it carefully, but let's really emphasize it because I'm as you were saying, I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I just wanted to really highlight what you're saying. Nor common. Yes, so versus so normal. yes, so common is being seen as normal. And because these things are becoming more common, they're being normalized. But we still want healthy brain development and we still want a child to be able to sit in a classroom and absorb information and achieve what they want to achieve. So since there are more people who have the symptoms, we stop thinking of it as something that needs help with. It's like exactly. obesity. Yes, a, yes. We, so many people are obese now that when you see somebody of a normal weight, like your size, it, you're kind of thin. You know, like that's what, how people might approach you. And you, to me, you look yeah. healthy and normal size. Thank you. But to have people heavy, everyone heavy around us, we begin, begin to think it's normal. Well, yes, and that's, yes, exactly. It's because when we think of, even even with lab values, sorry, we're gonna go on a little tangent. Um, even with lab values, it's two deviations from the mean. So what was a normal lab value even 20 years ago looks very different now. Like look at the changes in blood pressure, look at the changes in blood sugar, what is considered normal Because if you're versus looking at what a used to be bell considered curve, right? Normal. You're looking yeah. at a bell curve, it includes everybody. And if everybody's getting sicker, the normal changes. Exactly. So yeah. we're saying that that's normal. Everyone's sick. And it's like, no, it's not normal. How do we address this? Yeah. And um, we want optimal. We, d we don't want, we don't want normal. We want optimal yeah oh we not we don't want what's common what everyone else has. Yeah. yeah yes oh I'm really glad that you said that that's an important yeah. point yeah. yeah so and there's yeah and there's plenty of things that parents can do at home to help support their kids in that capacity so yeah. um, I love that and then also just cycling back to making sure that you're supporting your body well if you are thinking about having kids um, mm -hmm. I'm not planning on having kids anytime soon but I still take those vitamins every day to make sure that should you know a little blessing happen I have set my body up for the appropriate development of that child before I even know that I'm pregnant yeah so things like that and um, yeah just take care of yourselves that's that's <laughs> what I want I want people to just take care of themselves <laughs> well I really appreciate you coming on the show thank you so much and educating me about this and and um, it's just an area that that isn't talked about enough and that there's not this specific help available. And to me, it's just, it's, I don't think I have to be sick to come and get this kind of help. I need to just not yeah. be at my optimal best and I want absolutely optimal, yeah. Yes, yeah. There's, for me or my children or my grandchildren. Yeah, there's, yeah, there's a high preponderance of people thinking that they need to be on death's door to seek help. but. Yeah. It's not necessary. You can you can always find some ways to improve yourself. So yeah. Well, thanks so much for coming My on the show pleasure. today. I really appreciate it. Mm -hmm.